Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. My name is Han Cho, and uh, they've asked us to say a little bit about ourselves. I am a husband and a father. Uh, my wife, Heather, and I have been married for a bit over nine years, uh, and we have three going on four children. Uh, Abby, who's almost six, Elizabeth, who's almost four, and Joshua, who's a bit under two. And one player to be named later, a uh, boy that we expect in October. I'm also a lay elder here, serving as one of the pastors in the Cornerstone Fellowship Group. And when I say lay elder, that means I'm not actually paid by the church. I have a regular full-time job as a corporate lawyer. And in addition to Cornerstone, I have the privilege of serving on the Grace Advance team, which seeks to help core groups of people plant and revitalize churches in the United States and Canada. And finally, I recently joined the board of the Masters University and Seminary, two great educational institutions, which I love. This morning, our topic is legalism and Christian liberty. Now, whenever I hear the word legalism, speaking as a lawyer especially, my ears tend to perk up. The term is tossed around quite a bit in conservative evangelical Christendom, and sometimes it's used without good understanding. Sometimes it's used as a proper caution, and sometimes it's even used as a false accusation. Part of the challenge is that although legalism is definitely a concept that we see in the Bible, we never see the actual word itself in Scripture, to the best of my knowledge, and so it's never explicitly defined. As a result, different meanings and applications of legalism have arisen. Now, speaking generally, a common understanding of the word legalism can be drawn from the dictionary. Merriam-Webster defines legalism as a strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law. Now, we have to be careful with a common understanding like this because as Christians, we would certainly support and endorse a literal conformity to the law, to the word of God, even if that conformity were to be quite strict, for example. But I think we're starting to get somewhere if we focus on the words excessive conformity because that concept brings in the idea that legalism is something that is out of balance. It's too extreme. It goes beyond what is right or appropriate. And we see that out-of-balance legalism manifest itself within the church in various ways. Our Presbyterian brother, Dr. Dan Doriani, the professor of theology and ethics at Covenant Theological Seminary, helpfully writes about four types of legalism. And they're so helpful that we're going to use them as the outline and basis of this discussion. Four types of legalism. We have the heresy that following the law gets you into heaven. Dr. Doriani calls it autosoterism, but we'll simply call it save-yourself legalism. Then you have the people who think that after salvation, you need to keep the law in order to retain God's favor or remain heaven-bound. We'll call that falling-away legalism. We have the folks who emphasize obedience to the law so much that every other godly attitude tends to fade away, even fruit of the Spirit, which we will call joyless obedience legalism. Finally, the Christians who try to create new rules and laws not found in Scripture, which we will call the rules of men legalism, and we'll probably spend most of our time there today. Now, our first type of legalism is save-yourself legalism. It's probably the most classic type of legalism as well as the most deadly. It's an excessive conformity to the law that is so unbalanced that it's actually damnable and heretical because it tries to turn salvation, which is Wholly a work of God's grace into a works-based effort of man. Now, you don't see this type of legalism terribly often in well-taught churches that have a right 
understanding of the gospel. But even though it may be somewhat rare in these environments, it is so important that we get this right. Because any time you focus on man rather than God, any time the gospel fails to be regularly and clearly preached, you run into the risk of a legalistic moralism starting to take root. The type of false theology that says, oh, I'm a good person, so God couldn't possibly turn me away. Now, we see this legalism in the example of the rich young ruler in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, we'll quickly look at the passage from Mark, which is Mark 10, 17 through 22. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Basically, a young man rushed up to Jesus to ask him what the young man needed to do in order to be saved. Jesus answered that none are good except God alone, and then laid out some of the Ten Commandments. Incredibly, in a combination of arrogance and cluelessness, perhaps, the young man declared that he had kept the Ten Commandments since he was a boy. In other words, he was a good person, so why shouldn't he get into heaven? In his great love and compassion, Jesus showed the young man that he was in error and how he was in error by saying that he should sell all his possessions, give to the poor, and follow Jesus. Jesus was essentially telling this man that no human works, however good or radical they might be, could ever result in heaven. And that ultimately the young man was wrong when he thought he had obeyed the law perfectly since he was a boy. And by the way, it's interesting to note that the young man had still basically admitted that he had indeed broken the law as a boy at least. So even in that case, his life was imperfect and he would be condemned because he falls short of a perfectly holy God. Now we know this truth from Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in Jesus' call to follow him, he was showing the young man that only Jesus himself can save us. It is not our works. That is the truth of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Salvation is by grace, through faith, and solely a gift of God. It's only when we acknowledge the truth of Jesus being God and coming down to earth from heaven to live a perfect and sinless life as a man, fully man and fully God, and being persecuted by sinful men, tortured and crucified on a cross, where he took upon himself the sin of all those past, present, and future who would ever repent and believe in him. And then he died, and then he was raised in the third day, showing his victory over sin and death. It's when you understand that, and if if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved as it says in Romans 10.9. That is the truth of the gospel. Salvation is all from God and none from our works. In actuality, our works are utterly worthless for salvation. 
And we see this truth laid out clearly in Isaiah 64, 5 and 6, which is, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Polluted garment is sometimes translated as filthy rags. And in the Hebrew, it actually conveys the idea of a woman's menstrual pad. So again, that's very clear. Your works cannot save you. They are filthy rags. But even more than that, we cannot even add works to the gospel. It cannot be gospel plus works, because when we do that, we are corrupting and making a lie of the gospel itself. That is the very theme of the book of Galatians. The Judaizers were trying to tell Christians that they needed to be circumcised and follow Jewish Old Testament law in order to be saved. And we also see similarities today from groups that say the gospel is not enough, that you also need to be baptized in order to be saved, or that you need to go on a two-year mission trip in order to be saved, or you need to follow certain rituals of man in order to be saved. But none of that is necessary for salvation. And sadly, we are seeing this concept more and more in America from pulpits that are turningly, increasingly inward, increasingly manward toward these man-centered views and attitudes, and in particular toward views that are increasingly fixated on worldly ideas of so-called social justice. Here's one example from Dati Lewis, the president of the SEN network of the North American Missions Board, which is the Southern Baptist Convention's church planting organization. Lewis said, quote, The gospel is not good news without spiritual redemption and restoration. Okay, we agree up to that point, but then he goes on. But the gospel is also not good news without emotional, economic, and social restoration as well. This guy is messing with the gospel. And based on other things that he has written and said, I earnestly understand him to be saying that unless you become a social justice warrior for emotional, economic, and social restoration, you don't really have the true gospel. Even a man who I once esteemed years ago, such as Paul Tripp, seems to have surrendered to this man-centered teaching, saying this, quote, For all of my passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been accurate and faithful to the best of my ability, the gospel that I've held so dear has been, in reality, a truncated and incomplete gospel. By God's grace, I've become deeply persuaded that we cannot celebrate the gospel of God's grace without being a committed ambassador of the gospel of his justice as well. Now, that's from a letter which has remained on his website without further clarification for over three years, claiming that the true gospel, the biblical gospel, the real gospel that he once preached is not enough. In his words, it is truncated. It is incomplete without becoming a, quote, committed ambassador of the gospel of his justice. What in the world is that? That certainly sounds like adding works to the gospel to me. But instead of heeding Paul Tripp, we should instead heed Paul the Apostle, who in refuting this very error in Galatians 3, 1 through 3, said this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit are, you, spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Salvation is all about the gospel and nothing of our flesh or works. So that is the danger of the poison of save-yourself legalism. And the antidote is a true and right understanding of the glorious gospel of grace that actually does save. Now, we also see a related concept in our second type of legalism. We'll call it falling away legalism. And it's the notion that we need to keep the law in order to retain God's favor or remain heaven-bound. It's a little bit different from what we just talked about as part of our first type of save-yourself legalism when a person tried to combine the gospel with works. This type of legalism is an excessive conformity to the law that fails to understand God's perfect faithfulness and steadfastness and love. This type of legalism is more of a continuing lifestyle of works-based self-righteousness, often based on fear and insecurity. And we typically see this attitude within many free will Arminian theology uh, systems, which teach that one can lose one's salvation. In contrast, here at Grace Community Church, we teach the truth of eternal security, that all the redeemed, once saved, are kept by God's power and are thus secure in Christ forever. This is so clear from Scripture. There are many verses on this topic. You can find a long list in our doctrinal statement that's available on our website, but we'll just go through a few key verses here. There's John 6, 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. All that the Father gives to Jesus will come to him, and he will lose nothing. He is far too mighty for that. There is John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. None of the true sheep will be snatched out of Jesus' hand or God's hand. And there's Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Once we are in Christ, nothing in heaven or on earth can separate us from the love of God. Amen? Amen. What a joyful truth. So hopefully these verses will drive home the biblical truth that if you are genuinely saved, there is nothing you can or cannot do that will change that reality. I think Pastor John put it incredibly well when he said, Satan could go to God's throne and lay out a formidable and increasingly longer list of the sins of John MacArthur. And the longer I live, the longer the list gets. And frankly, the accumulated list would be horrific. And so would yours. For every one of us, there is a staggering list of indictments. There is a staggering list of disqualifications. We continue to violate God's law. We continue to be, to one degree or another, idolatrous. We continue to be wicked. And believe me, the list is sufficient to condemn us all. How could we ever keep our own salvation? The thought is absolutely ridiculous. And so I say, if I could lose my salvation, 
I would, and so would you. So that's the truth. We cannot lose our salvation. Once we are his, God will never stop loving us. Now, I think it's important to make two distinctions. First, we're talking about genuinely saved people here. It's very different for people who are false Christians who may claim the faith but deny it with their lives. I would say that a full discussion of what a false assurance of salvation looks like is outside the scope of this specific class. But one of the helpful identifying marks of a Christian is whether there is a hatred of sin, especially one's own sin, by the way. I believe Romans 6, 1 through 2 is edifying on this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So even though all Christians still sin, true Christians have an earnest desire to kill that sin and not to continue in it. That's a heart desire, an earnest heart desire. Second, for those who are genuinely saved and truly God's children, when we sin, we can and do grieve the Lord. We see that many times in the Old Testament when God grieves over Israel's sin. And we also know from the latter half of Ephesians chapter 4 that our sin grieves the Holy Spirit. But even as a parent may grieve over a child's waywardness and rebellion. The parent still deeply loves the child. How much more perfect is our awesome God's love for us, despite how often we miss the mark and grieve him? He will never leave us nor forsake us. We know this from Hebrews 13.5. Now, this is true even or especially when our perfect God decides to discipline us. Hebrews 12, 7-11 states, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Being disciplined by God, having a godly response to that discipline, and bearing fruit from it is actually strong evidence of our salvation. Now, in that light, Christians should move away from a false mindset of legalistically needing to follow all of the rules or else God will bring divine punishment and wrath because he has absolutely none of that for his precious children who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. This truth is perfectly illustrated by 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Instead, Our motive for everything we do, including the observing of God's word, should be based on love. We see this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And just as our sin is indeed capable of grieving our Holy Father, our obedience is also capable of pleasing him. In his helpful paper titled, Pleasing God by Our Obedience and Neglected New Testament Teaching, Dr. Wayne Grudem lists at least 18 ways that we can please God. Now, I'm just going to display the summary on the slide here and read to you the supporting verses, which you can take down if you want and look at later. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. 
Romans 14, 18. 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 34. Galatians 1, 10. Philippians 4, 18. Colossians 1, 10. Colossians 3, 20. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. 1 Timothy 2, 3. 1 Timothy 5, 4. Hebrews 11, 6 and 12, 28 and 13, 16 and 13, 21 and 1 John 3, 22. It's a beautiful study and I would commend it to you because, again, is that not all of our desire to please our Lord and Savior and, and to, to honor him and to do all things for the glory of God and his kingdom. Amen? Sadly, a love of God and a desire to please him aren't always our motives when we seek to obey his word. And that leads us to our third type of legalism, which we're calling joyless obedience legalism. Other terms we could use include just do it legalism, grit your teeth legalism, or white knuckle legalism. This is an excessive conformity to the law that so emphasizes obedience that other Christian attitudes and fruit of the Spirit, such as joy, are stunted or even absent. It's an almost obsessive focus on law-keeping that doesn't penetrate to the heart. In speaking of the joyless obedience legalist, our pastor's late friend, R.C. Sproul, put it this way, There's no love, joy, life, or passion. It's a rote, mechanical form of law-keeping that we call externalism. The legalist focuses only on obeying bare rules, destroying the broader context of God's love and redemption in which he gave his law in the first place. It's all about moralism, behavior modification, social and societal rules. And what's missing is the power of the gospel and an earnest love for Christ. Matthew 23, 25 through 28 is a good example of this from scripture. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The Pharisees appeared righteous to men, but their hearts were hateful and far from God. So obedience alone is not sufficient. It needs to be obedience motivated by a heart of love for God. My dear friend Mike Riccardi has just so many helpful thoughts on this general concept of how our obedience needs to be motivated by love for God, and I would commend that Mike's messages to you. This truth is illustrated well by Paul, the former Pharisee among Pharisees, in 2 Corinthians 5, 12 through 15. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. When we're saved, 
We know the love of Christ and that transforms us from the inside out. We see this reality lived out in 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through living and abiding word of God. Salvation results in love, love for Christ and love for God's people. Indeed, at salvation, every believer receives the Holy Spirit and from the Spirit comes fruit of the Spirit. Let's look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. It's so interesting that once again, we see love featured prominently. It's, in fact, the first fruit of the fruit of the Spirit. And the second fruit is joy, which is the exact cure for joyless obedience legalism. In fact, if we're serious about obedience to God's word, we need to understand that joyless obedience is an oxymoron. It's impossible to fully obey God's word unless you also have joy. Remember, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Joy itself is a command. Philippians 4.4, I just quoted it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. These attitudes of rejoicing, prayerfulness, gratitude are to be with us as Christians always. Now, we may not always succeed, of course, but that should be the inclination of our regenerated hearts, our supernatural default posture, so to speak. And when we obey out of a motive of love for God, joyless obedience legalism loses its power and the grit-your-teeth, white-knuckle type of effort is made much easier. And we know this from 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. When we do this, when we obey out of love for God, we abide in God's love and we receive a full measure of joy. We see this in John 15, 10, and 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Yet again, we see obedience, love, and joy linked together, so much so and so closely that joyless obedience legalism is ultimately nonsensical. So we've covered save-yourself legalism, falling-away legalism, and joyless obedience legalism. Let's get to our fourth and final and longest point, rules of men legalism, and then if we have enough time, we'll do some Q&A. Rules of men legalism is an excessive conformity to a man-made rule or ritual. Now, in discussing this last type of legalism, it's very important to have a good understanding of Christian liberty. I actually really hate pointing to one of my own messages, but surely because it's so directly relevant, I really do, uh, to this part of today's class. I did a Sundays in July session six years ago on Christian liberty entitled Honoring God in the Gray Areas. And if you Google that exact term, Honoring God in the Gray Areas, it should come up as the third or fourth hit. Now, to summarize the relevant part of that sermon, 
We're going to define Christian liberty as the freedom to make decisions which are neither commanded nor forbidden by the word of God. Again, Christian liberty is the freedom to make decisions which are neither commanded nor forbidden by the word of God. Now that is truly an enormous amount of scope and liberty when you think about it. And although it is greatly freeing and liberating to think about the freedom that we have in Christ, both in terms of freedom from the bondage of sin and the freedom to act in Christian liberty, we do indeed have guidance from the Word of God on how we're to use or not use our Christian liberty. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 8, 9. Be careful, however, that your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. We also see this concept elsewhere in Scripture, such as in Romans 14. We do not engage in Christian liberty if it means that our weaker Christian brother will stumble into sin. And we'll talk more about that concept a little bit later. There's also 1 Peter 2.16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We are not to use our Christian liberty as a cover-up for evil. And that happens a lot, sadly. People who say, liberty, 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 leave me alone, nothing to see here. And yet in actuality, they are sinning secretly. You can't cheat on your taxes, pretend to be an upstanding citizen, and claim that you're just exercising your Christian liberty. You can't say that you're free in your liberty to, say, drink alcohol, so lighten up, when you really know that your usual practice is to get completely drunk, which is indeed sinful, or that you're actually enslaved to alcohol. Anytime you lean on Christian liberty as an excuse for sin, you're violating 1 Peter 2.16. And let's also talk about Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, this verse is similar to 1 Peter 2.16, but it's a bit broader. We're actually not to engage in any overindulgence of Christian liberty just to gratify ourselves as an opportunity for the flesh. Oh, let's play video games all day long. It's not sinful. I'm not addicted. I can stop any time. It's my Christian liberty. I'm just going to sit around all weekend and binge watch Netflix. Look, some of this stuff may be okay in moderation, but this verse tells us do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So instead, what should we be doing with our Christian liberty? We'll keep on reading Galatians 5.13. But through love, serve one another. That is what Christian liberty is. Is all about. You have the freedom to practice the one another's. And this idea also echoes 1 Peter 2.16, which we just read. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The best use of your Christian liberty is to serve one another, to live as servants of God. So that's a brief outline of what Christian liberty is. Again, it's the freedom to make decisions which are neither commanded nor forbidden by the word of God and some very general guidelines about what we are to do and not to do with our Christian liberty. Now, whenever we consider Christian liberty, we have to be very careful that we're not making up man-made rules or rituals to either restrict or expand our Christian liberty. Even more importantly, we need to be especially careful that we aren't trying to graft our own convictions and preferences in an area of Christian liberty onto other Christians. Because when we do this, we're engaging in the very essence of this type of rules of man legalism. Taking a step back, all of us have or ought to have certain personal convictions about how we go about our Christian walk. 
They might even be wise convictions, or at least wise for us. But the place where we err is when we start trying to require others to follow our own personal convictions. Now, let's get into a number of specific examples. During the period when my wife and I were dating, or courting if you prefer, we both shared some personal convictions, such as never being alone together in a private place. We didn't want to say I love you until we were engaged, although I did blow that one accidentally a couple of times. (laughs) What can I say? My wife is a very lovable person. And we did indeed save our very first kiss for our wedding ceremony. Now, these convictions emerged from numerous biblical concepts and even specific verses such as remaining above reproach and making no provision for the flesh and not wanting to defraud the other person and upholding the importance of purity. But even though all of that might be a fine exercise of Heather's and my own personal convictions and consciences, it would be legalistic for us to require every one of those things for the people in our Bible study, for example, because none of those things are explicitly commanded or forbidden in Scripture. Now, when we're meeting with younger couples or when people ask us about convictions that Heather and I might have shared, we might talk about what we did, and we might even gently suggest that some of them might not be a bad idea for them to consider as well. But we try to take great care in leaving it at that so that people can form their own convictions rather than just blindly adopt ours. Let's take another example, divorce. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount and also arguably elsewhere, depending on your manuscripts, gave allowance for divorce in the case of adultery. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.15 gave allowance for divorce if an unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage. And yet some people... Some Christians argue that because Malachi 2.16 states that God hates divorce, and he does, they then take that and extend that to say that we should therefore never enter into a divorce even in cases of adultery or an unbelieving spouse abandoning the marriage. Now, of course, it is up to any given Christian whether or not they want to proceed with a biblical divorce in these situations, and it might be a beautiful picture of forgiveness not to proceed. But trying to forbid a biblical divorce where the scriptures clearly allow it would be legalistic. It would be a rule of men. And in some ways, it's trying to be holier than God's word because Jesus explicitly allows for it. And although I personally struggled to find many situations where I would actually counsel someone to get a divorce if they're biblically allowed to, neither would I attempt to stand in the way of a biblical divorce. The Lord appears to have allowed this provision for our own weaknesses and in light of the reality of the intense intimacy of marriage. And one could perhaps also make the argument that a marriage that persists after an adultery, but is utterly miserable, might not be the best representation of Christ in his church. Here's another hot-button issue recently. Masks! Yeah, I'm going there. There is no specific guidance in the Bible about wearing masks either as a precautionary measure or as a governmental mandate. Now, one could make all kinds of arguments by analogy, and we've seen them all, I think. We could make all kinds of application of general biblical principles, but those could go any number of different directions. In terms of specific verses, however, it's slim to none. Now, one could argue that certain Old Testament passages in Leviticus 13 and elsewhere cut in favor of social distancing or quarantining of those who are actually sick with an unclean disease. But I'm not aware of anything in Scripture that restricts the healthy. 
In contrast, our own Pastor John makes a very interesting argument about the importance of unmasked face-to-face koinonia or fellowship with other believers based on various New Testament passages. It's contained in a declaration that he filed in the lawsuit. If you Google John MacArthur rebuttal declaration, it should be the first hit. But even so, even in that very declaration, he plainly acknowledges this is a matter of conscience and that we as a church refuse to bind the consciences of believers on this topic. So if that's the case, why does it seem like so many tempers are still so hot on this issue? I can't say for sure. Maybe part of it's wrapped up in a political angle. Maybe it's because it's so intensely personal. Maybe it's because convictions on this are so strong. But regardless, it does appear that on this topic, there's a whole lot of judgment and judging others' hearts and motives going on. But we're actually commanded not to judge others' hearts in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. We're also commanded in 2 Corinthians 5, the first half of verse 16, that from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. This means we don't judge people based on surface distinctions. Rather than assuming mask wearers are mindless, cowardly drones who believe everything that they hear, or assuming that maskless people are reckless, neighbor-hating rebels who probably believe in QAnon as well, (laughs) it could just be that these people have certain convictions on either obeying the government, perhaps, on one hand, or recognizing the government's limits on our personal and constitutional freedoms, on the other hand. And even if you don't share those same convictions, if the motive of these folks is truly love for God and a desire for personal holiness, then their actions are honoring to the Lord. So maybe instead of judging, you can have a civil discussion about it. Now, I have no objections to people encouraging others to read this or read that or to even to exhort one another based on this biblical principle or that biblical principle. And in many cases, that's actually one of the goals of pulpit ministry, by the way. But the whole searing condemnation thing is really unnecessary and unhelpful. And since we, as our church, have taken a very public stance on some of this, I want to point out a passage that shows exactly why. I've heard so many people seem to take it for granted. Oh, we should just obey the government. As long as the government isn't forcing us to sin, we need to obey. That might be a trite truism, but I believe it's also wrong biblically. Now, that's a bold statement. You want me to prove it? I would hope that you would, right, as Bereans. (laughs) Let's look at Acts 16, 35 through 37. In fact, I want you to turn there because it's, it's important. You can see it up here on the screen, but if you happen to have your Bibles or Bible apps available, go ahead and go to Acts 16, 35 through 37. I think it'll be helpful for you to have the whole passage available to you. Acts 16, 35 through 37, starting at verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. 
So here's a governmental authority, an officer of the law, who is charged by his own magistrates and superiors to go deliver an order. Come out now and go in peace. That seems like a pretty reasonable order, right? Obeying that order would not have required Paul to sin. One could even argue that obeying that order might have furthered certain other biblical principles, such as being at peace with all men and forgiveness and honoring authority. Maybe some would say that Paul could have shown his love for the jailer by obeying. But in his own stewardship and wisdom, filled with the Holy Spirit and recorded in the pages of immortal scripture, Paul did not do that. Instead, he said no. And other translations say no indeed. That is an emphatic refusal. Note also that Paul didn't ask for a judge's permission to refuse. He just invoked his own rights as a citizen. Wow, that kind of puts an interesting spin on Romans 13, doesn't it? So maybe Romans 13 does not require a meek and submissive or even slavish consent to every single governmental order or overreach. So why might Paul have done this? Let's keep reading verses 38 to 40. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is so interesting. I was interacting with my friend Chris LaDuke about this. He's a Grace Advance pastor up in Oregon. And although it's not stated explicitly in Scripture, I think it's a reasonable inference. What do you think Paul's encouragement was to the brothers? Was it a general, hey, good job, keep it up? Come on, what do you think Paul did? He had to have told them what had just happened, right? Hey, guys, they threw us in jail and stripped us and beat us. And in response, we were praying and singing hymns. Then the Lord moved, and there was an earthquake that broke the whole jail open. And our chains fell off, too. That wasn't the earthquake. That was divine intervention. And then the jailer came, and we preached the gospel to him. And God saved him and his whole family, his whole household. Then the magistrates tried to tell us to just go in peace. But oh no, not so fast. Instead, we stood up to them. And then they came and apologized. Now look, we can't promise you a trouble-free future. And we're heading out to the next city. But because we stood up to them, my hope and prayer is that maybe they'll think twice before messing with the rest of you again. Again, you know, obviously, this is not in Scripture. This is an inference. This is a supposition. I'm painting a possible picture to you. But when you envision this scene in your mind, perhaps you can have an idea of at least some of the reasons why we have also chosen the path that we have at this church. But I do grieve when I hear some of the accusations. Although I trust some of the criticism comes from a legitimate place of good faith discourse, sometimes, to be frank, it is not in good faith. Sometimes it's misunderstanding, even after many explanations. And a few could even privately be convicted, perhaps, by other people's desire to honor the Lord. 2 Timothy 3.12 states, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, and that is a truth and a promise. But wouldn't it be great if that persecution were to come exclusively from the world and not from other Christians? We see this with some of our beloved Canadian pastor brethren, 
who are convinced from God's word that they need to hold worship services even though the Canadian government is shutting them down or even jailing them. And instead of encouraging them, we see so many Christian pundits and evangelical bigwigs taking shots. Oh, that's not real persecution. Look, when the police drag you away and your kids are crying and you're prevented from leading your family and your church, I'm sorry, but that is the very essence of persecution. Even if there's no waterboarding or torture or execution, at least not yet, that is still persecution. So we've talked about some examples. What about situations where we might not be legalistically insisting that someone else follow our own convictions, but perhaps we have another motive for wanting to nudge that person in a certain direction? Maybe we have an earnest desire for someone we love to prioritize what we consider to be holiness and holy living. Maybe we want someone to take a wise course of action rather than a foolish one. Or maybe we have some basic household rules, which we're not even remotely claiming are commanded in Scripture, like wash your own dishes or no pets in the house. But maybe they're still received that way from the people living under our roof. These may be tougher cases, but we still need to remember that whenever we push too hard to the point that we're adding to or taking away from God's word, and instead using man-made rules or rituals, we're actually the ones engaging in sin if we draw that hard line. We know this from Deuteronomy 12.32, when God is speaking of his law. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. And when we start trying to bind other people's consciences with these man-made rules or rituals in a matter of Christian liberty, we're like the Pharisees in Matthew 23.4, sadly. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Instead of that judgmental attitude, we should strive for an attitude of charity and patience and forbearance with our brothers and sisters in the area of Christian liberty. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about sin, which can absolutely be confronted. Again, I'm talking about Christian liberty, which is something that is neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. I'm also not talking, again, by the way, There's nothing to be said that you can't form a household rule. Of course you can. You can make rules for your household. We have rules for the worship center, like no smoking in the worship center. We're not claiming that's from Scripture. We're just saying that's a way of good order for our own worship center, just like you can have certain things for your own household. But we just have to be very careful that we're making distinctions between that and the Word of God. In these situations, when we have these kind of discussions and we're seeing Christian liberty and we're seeing someone maybe doing something that we just don't think is wise. We shouldn't be sitting back with folded arms, shaking our heads and watching for the disaster, which we just know is coming, right? With an I told you so ready in our lips. Romans 14, one through four speaks to this attitude. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, we should not be looking down on other Christians. But in many ways, unfortunately, rules of men legalism is about exactly that 
sort of arrogant condescension. We often see it come out in the Christian liberty concept of the stronger and weaker brother in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and Romans chapter 14. A stronger brother is someone whose conscience allows for a greater degree of Christian liberty, while a weaker brother is someone whose conscience allows for only a lesser degree. So how do we figure out who's stronger and who's weaker? For example, if a woman wears a head covering from their own convictions, is that the stronger or the weaker sister? Or what about a guy who drinks alcohol in moderation? Is that the stronger or the weaker brother? In many ways, I believe Scripture would almost answer, who cares, right? Let's take another look at Romans 14.3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Either way, whether you're stronger or weaker, or your brother is stronger or weaker, neither one of you is supposed to look down on the other person. So in that regard, who cares who is stronger and weaker? This truth is borne out by the Greek words for stronger and weaker itself. It's dunamis and astheneo, which means ability and inability, capacity and incapacity. And it's the same type of word used in 1 Peter 3, 7 when women are referred to as the physically weaker vessel. That's all it is. It doesn't mean that women are less valuable or morally inferior or inherently worse in any way. I think, unfortunately, there can be a lot of contempt that comes along with certain judgmental views of oneself as strong or wise and others as weak or foolish, supposedly. I know this because I've done it myself to my own shame. But do you really want to turn your view upside down on this topic? There are many godly men I know, many godly pastors I know, whose consciences would be bothered by meeting with a woman alone in private. That is not his wife. Now, Technically speaking, there is no overt scripture forbidding that. You could maybe make an indirect argument about avoiding every form of evil, not making provision from the fla- uh, not making any provision against the flesh, but uh, that would be a personal application of those verses and not a flat prohibition from scripture. So even though that pastor's conscience may not allow him to meet with that woman, not his wife, is that pastor really being the weaker brother, or is he perhaps being the wiser? brother in this instance. What about another guy who smokes and spends freely on his own personal comforts? That has to be the weaker brother, right? Well, let's get into it. A young Christian man was asked what he should do about a box of cigars he'd been given. The older man solved his problem. Give them to me, he said, and I will smoke them to the glory of God. (laughs) You see, Smoking in and of itself is not a sin. It is not forbidden in Scripture. Now, it might be disgusting to some people and might be foolish considering what we know about some of the health impacts in in some ways, but it is not sin unless you are addicted. On another occasion, that older man was criticized for traveling to meetings first class. His antagonist said, What are you doing up here? I am riding back there in third class taking care of the Lord's money. The older man replied, and I am up here in first class taking care of the Lord's servant. (laughs) Again, traveling first class is not a sin. Even Jesus and the disciples, for example, took some time off and, you know, one could argue went on vacation in Mark 6, 31. So who is this supposedly weaker brother? 
Well, some of you may already know. It is Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. So what's our own reaction when we see a Christian who seems different in some way? Maybe he smokes. Maybe he has piercings and tattoos. Maybe he dresses a little bit differently. Do you look down on him or her? Be honest. And if you do, then maybe you need to repent. Because trying to, trying to graft your own convictions onto another person in a matter of Christian liberty is sinful. Now, there's a flip side to this type of contempt, and this idea has sometimes been called the tyranny of the weaker brother. The foundation of this issue is based on Romans 14.23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So, if an action violates a Christian's especially sensitive conscience on a matter, the action would be sin for that Christian, even if many other Christians might consider it to be a matter of Christian liberty. In that sense, the action is a subjective sin for the Christian with a very sensitive conscience. And then, you take it a step further, you get the tyranny of the weaker brother when the believer with a sensitive conscience essentially uses it as a weapon against other believers. What do you mean you love Star Wars? Wait, what did you say? You watch Harry Potter? (sighs) (laughs) Or perhaps more relevantly in the season we're in right now, wait, What do you mean you are not vaccinated? (laughs) Well, I am absolutely positive that the Bible says nothing at all about vaccines, right? (laughs) Which means they are neither forbidden nor commanded. So at that point, we are indeed in the realm of Christian liberty and wisdom. Now, I personally happen to believe that many vaccines are generally safe and generally effective. And so they can often be a good idea, perhaps. But you know what I'm not going to do is that I am not going to turn something that is not in Scripture into some kind of litmus test as to whether you're being a good Christian or not. Romans 14.5 says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. If someone isn't fully convinced in his own mind as to vaccines, I am not going to try to browbeat that person into my position. Now, some would argue that if if you don't get vaccinated, you don't love your neighbor. But if there's one thing that the church shutdowns have revealed to me, it's that although I certainly agree that love your neighbor is a great commandment, and I certainly agree that love your neighbor can sometimes be a very fair encouragement, Everyone needs to be very careful not to pervert, love your neighbor into do what I say or else I will falsely accuse you of not loving your neighbor because that is pharisaical legalism and emotional blackmail. And for all the people encouraging others to love their neighbors, I hope they will also remember that love the Lord your God is an even greater commandment than love your neighbor. Certainly, we need to remember that when it comes to gathering for corporate worship. And on the level of practical application, we should think about how much power we really want the government to have, whether it's the power to shut down churches or the power to mandate injections into your own body. So when we consider this idea of tyranny of the weaker brother, and remember again that it isn't always obvious or relevant who the weaker brother might be in certain cases, when it does come out, It often takes the form of a demand or an airing of grievances or a taking of offense. 
In contrast, truly humble people have often have a totally different attitude. Humility asks, it doesn't demand. Consider how different a humble request from a former gambler or former alcoholic or former charismatic might be when compared to a self-righteous demand. Hi, you know, uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic, and when I'm around it, I I just tend to overindulge. So I just wanted to ask, are, are you planning to have wine at your dinner? I promise I will totally understand either way. It's your home, and I'm definitely not asking you to change anything just for me. I just wanted to be forewarned so that I can make an informed decision. Now, I'd personally be incredibly sympathetic to a question like that, as opposed to, for example, oh, I cannot believe that you would serve wine to a guest. How horrible. I'm offended. I'm appalled. How could you do such a thing? Or perhaps it's a guy who stumbles into lust, even at the sight of, say, an exposed ankle. Is it more appropriate for that guy to try to insist that every woman in the congregation wear a burqa? Or is it perhaps better for the guy to look down or away, or maybe even in an extreme case, be led around by another brother if that's absolutely necessary until he can grow spiritually to the point of having some minimum baseline of self-control? Look, we need to remember that subjective sin, the sin that comes from a Christian's especially sensitive conscience, is only sin for that person. For everyone else, 1 Corinthians 29, the second half, and verse 30 is very helpful on this issue. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Another fantastic verse on this is Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not be encumbered once more by a yoke of slavery. We shouldn't rub it in the face of the Christian with a sensitive conscience, for sure. And we must not deliberately place a stumbling block within that Christian's path. But neither should we allow our own liberty to be determined by someone else's conscience. Again, that is the very nature of rules of man legalism. And identifying this difference is of critical importance. It's like the difference between making a personal decision to boycott, say, Target, versus insisting that everyone else join the boycott or else they're either offending you or being a bad Christian. As an example of this, a number of years ago, Johnny Erickson Tata took a really sweet picture with the daughter of one of the pastors here. It was an incredible encouragement to her and just an adorable moment. So I was kind of horrified then to see a ton of social media comments from professing Christians that absolutely savaged Johnny for daring to shop at Target. And this is a really prime example of the rules of man legalism that I believe we've been discussing. I guess Johnny missed the extra-biblical revelation that shopping at Target is now a sin. Remember, if people are trying to impose their consciences on you like this, they are often the ones who are sinning because they're usually either adding to or taking away from the word of God, as we said before in Deuteronomy 12.32. Either that or they may be trying to tie up heavy, extra-biblical burdens on your back, as we talked about before in Matthew 23, 4. And if a brother or sister sins in this way against you, you may want to show that person his or her fault in private. If you decide to go, make sure you fully understand the issue, because there can be great confusion sometimes on areas such as liberty and legalism. That's why Paul has devoted entire chapters to this topic in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Timothy 4, pretty much the entire book of Galatians. 
Maybe you could ask for a second opinion from a godly mentor or leader in your life. And if you do ultimately decide to confront that person, always, always, always make sure that you have these specific verses that you believe are being violated. And before you confront anyone on this, make sure you've taken the plank out of your own eye first, as it says in Matthew 7, 5. How are you approaching matters of liberty and legalism in your own life? Are you approaching them with matters with, with humility? Are you having some social awareness about what you're eating and doing and wearing and hosting and listening to and watching and inviting other people to do? If you're not sure whether you might be inadvertently offending someone or causing that person to stumble, consider going to him or her and graciously asking some questions. So now that we've talked about this issue of rules of men legalism, let's talk about some practical ways to avoid it. How can we exercise our Christian liberty without becoming legalistic? First, we have to educate ourselves on what the word actually says and doesn't say. 1 Corinthians 8.7 states, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Some people have weak consciences because they don't know the word of God very well. Examples of this might be newer believers or believers who are stuck in environments that are heavy on traditional and ritual and light on biblical knowledge. Now, in this way, it matters very much who the weaker or the stronger brother is because all of us want to become more and more strong in the word of God. Amen? Even just knowing a passage such as Colossians 2, 20 through 23 can be incredibly helpful in breaking free of legalism. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which, matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence." This passage tells us to beware the commandments and teachings of men and that certain things might have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion but are actually of no value against the flesh. And to help try to avoid those things, you should remember that it's always appropriate to ask for chapter and verse in support of particular propositions. Another thing you could do, relax about what other people might be doing, especially if it's not Sin. Romans 14, 10 through the first half of verse 13 is helpful in this concept. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more. It's the contempt, the holier-than-thou attitude, the looking down on others that can often cause rules of men legalism to be so dangerous to the unity of the body of Christ. It's the busybody mentality, the you-need-to-do-what-I-do attitude that can sometimes result in some of the worst problems as it pertains to disunity. Because you know what? That family who chooses to social distance in the tent outside probably isn't hurting you in any way. And it's only when you start looking down on them, or on the flip side, if they start trying to shame you for not social distancing or whatever, 
that's when the damage can start. Again, to reemphasize, this is for matters of Christian liberty and legalism. This is not for matters of clear sin, which may indeed need to be confronted. And that's why it is so important, again, that I say that you need to know your Bible. You need to understand the distinctions between sin and foolishness, between foolishness and liberty, between liberty and wisdom, and between wisdom and what's commanded. And it's especially important on the topic of legalism to know the difference between a universal truth in Scripture and a personal conviction. Between commands versus advice versus even, say, a confrontation of sin. And by the way, please don't take it personally if someone else doesn't take your advice. At the end of the day, it is that person's life and their own accountability before the Lord. Now, as one example... In the realm of dating, Heather or I might think that someone is a great and godly guy or someone is a great and godly gal. In contrast, we might think, oh, that is a train wreck of a dating relationship. But at the end of the day, I don't think my own opinion is really worth all that much in that situation necessarily because it's that guy and that gal who will have to live with each other. Now, if there are red flags and you've given the appropriate conscience, you've given the appropriate cautions, you've done your duty. You've been the Ezekiel 33 watchman on the wall who called out a warning, and the rest is that couple's responsibility. And indeed, it might end up badly, although we earnestly implore to the Lord that it wouldn't. But regardless, God is sovereign, and it will all work out for the good of those who believe. Now, I know so much of this can be complicated and tricky, but the answer is not to lock yourself in your room and do nothing out of fear of causing someone else to stumble. Instead, my desire for you is to think about these things, to to use discernment. My desire for you is to have a biblical worldview and to see everything through God-centered lenses. Read about this stuff. Talk about it with your friends and family. Have conversations about legalism and Christian liberty because that's really what so much of the Christian life is about, living in community, living in fellowship, living in discipleship, helping to make disciples, both inside the church and outside of it as we go to evangelize. And as we ponder this topic of legalism, I appreciate the words of our friend Stephen Nichols, who has been with us at the Shepherds Conference before. He's the president of Reformation Bible College and the chief academic officer of Ligonier Ministries. And he said, the opposite of legalism is not license, It is liberty. We need to remember that we have freedom in Christ and that we are not enslaved by the rules of men. And as we ponder the meaning of liberty, I think it would be helpful if we turn to Romans 13, 9, and 10. This is right before we launch into the epic chapter of Romans 14 that we've talked about so much on the topic of Christian liberty. But at the end of Romans chapter 13, again, Romans 13, 9, and 10, The end of Romans 13 sums it up this way. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The solution to legalism is liberty, and liberty can be simplified to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. Don't look down upon him. Don't cause him to stumble. 
Don't try to graft your own conscience and convictions on him. And when you can do that, I believe you will avoid the trap of legalism in any of its four forms, Lord willing, even as you also strive to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I earnestly pray that this has been helpful to the people. What matters most to me is that you are glorified, Lord, and your word is held up high. And your word is so helpful just in terms of how we can live our lives as Christians. What, what else would we ever go to? I, pr- I pray that we would all have the word of God as the guiding principle for our lives, even as we ser- seek to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, we're grateful. We praise you. We thank you. And we just pray that uh, we would be able to reflect on these things with a spirit of love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we do have about 15 minutes, and so I think that we can have a time of Q&A. If I could ask you, uh, do your best to make any questions brief to the extent they can be of more broad applicability than very specific. That would be helpful. I'm happy to stay afterwards and talk to you if you have a very specific or fact-intensive question. Uh, But yeah, let's, uh, let's go ahead, and if you have a question, you can raise your hand. Sir. Yeah, so the question is, can you give a little more uh, thoughts on how you give advice as a husband, a pastor, a father uh, in these areas? And I think that's such a critical question because, you know, obviously as we live our lives, as parents for sure, you know, we're going to have rules and corrections, and Lord willing, they are all ultimately based on biblical principles, but, you know, <laughs> you know, stop hitting your brother. Uh, may, may, you know, there may not be an explicit verse for that, but we can certainly go to biblical principles about being kind to one another. And, uh, you know, the, the, the challenge is, I think, trying to bring everything back to the Bible in some way, shape, or form. And I try to make it very clear when I'm giving advice to someone that is my opinion versus advice to someone that is based on the Word of God. Like, the Proverbs are incredible. You know, the, like, study the Proverbs for daily life and wisdom and, and just how to go about life. Now, much of the Proverbs is indeed wisdom literature. It's not necessarily, there are commands within Proverbs, but some of the Proverbs are just kind of general, kind of, this is how you can approach life. And so I think you can certainly show the Proverbs to people and say, look, this is the wisest course for your life. But sometimes people may not take that advice. I, again, my wife and I were involved in the college and career ministry for six years together as mentor staff and you know, boy, we love that group of people, but there's a lot of times that they just would not want to take advice, even advice from the Bible, even advice from Proverbs. And, you know, look, until they stray into sin, I'm not necessarily going to confront them, even though I may implore them, entreat them, kind of point them to the Word of God. You know, I do grieve sometimes because I do think that I see people heading down a very unwise path, but sadly, sometimes that is what the Lord may use to, to grow them is to experience the consequences of that. And, and sometimes, look, there's a couple I can think of. You know, they, they had a train wreck of a dating relationship, and they had maybe a rough first year of marriage, but praise the Lord, they're doing incredibly well right now. And, you know, I just pray, you know, again, we, we you know, even if we have some concerns, we, we hope and pray for the best, and we believe the best, and we, we you know, we want to be there to love 
our, our brothers and sisters as they're going through life. And I think that applies again to, to, to marriage and to children. And again, anytime you have an authority structure, there is also a distinction that you need to make. You know, sometimes there are times, even though I would personally believe anytime there is an authority structure, whether it's elder, congregant, or husband, wife, or parent, child, or uh, employer, employee, at our church, we really encourage the, the less you can lean on authority and the more you can lean on influence and persuasion, the better, because you have an incredible risk of being heavy-handed. The scriptures talk about servant leadership in the Gospel of Matthew and the importance of showing that example and showing, look, the, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and it is not to be that way among Christians. And so I think that, uh, again, keeping that principle in mind is helpful in terms of striving to lead by example rather than by dictate. But yeah, of course, and sometimes there are times in an authority relationship where there might need to be a more pointed conversation. And so I, I'm hopeful, does that help in terms of answering the question? Yeah. Other questions? Yes, sir. That's exactly, I think that's a fair assessment. So the question is, uh, in taking from this discussion, uh, you know, the, the rules of men in particular, when it's not commanded or forbidden, uh, how do you kind of apply Scripture to those areas of your life? Well, as we just talked about, I do think that the Scripture does give us incredible guidance as it pertains to what may be a more wise course of action in certain cases. There are, I mean, you know, the importance of hard work is so praised in Scripture. If you look at the Scriptures and the example of the sluggard, you know, and, and how that's warned against, you know, that type of laziness, you know, you can certainly point people to that and say, look, you don't want to be a sluggard. You want, you want to be someone who's diligent and hardworking. And, uh, you know, yet unless that person is falling all the way into the area of leading a dissipated life, and if you look at First Thessalonians, uh, you know, it talks about uh, if you do not work, you, do, you will not eat. You know, there, there are certainly times where a person is being unruly to the point of being sinful. But, boy, is that per- person working hard enough? That, that's kind of a gray area, right? That's, that's a subjective kind of call. But absolutely, we want to apply Scripture to every area of our life. And especially as we are applying, applying it to our own lives, you know, we, we can do that. The trickier part becomes, again, when we're, I just answered the question about advice, when we're giving counsel, we can point people to the Word of God. We should, we must, but in certain cases, there's still a very broad spectrum as to what people will choose to do, and, you know, sometimes they will heed and sometimes they will not. And, yeah, and we, I think there is an element where people, you know, are going to make their own mistakes, especially if they're adults. Uh, you know, just, uh, you know, we try to help our children with that. We try to point them to the Word of God. We try to, again, encourage them, raise them in a way, give them corrections, give them encouragements that would lead them in a godly way, uh, absolutely, especially when they're under our own roof. But, you know, to the extent that as people become adults, there is a greater challenge. And, um, you know, it's hard for us sometimes because we love these people. We want the best for them. We want, we want, them to live holy lives and lives that are honoring to the Lord. And uh, despite our desire for that, despite our deep love for those people, 
you know, again, sometimes it is their own accountability before the Lord at the end of the day. And, you know, we pray that we will be there for them to help them if they fall. And, you know, the Proverbs say as well, uh, I'm paraphrasing, that uh, a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. It's the wicked who stumble in the day of calamity. And, um, again, I don't know that I've quoted that perfectly, and I don't have the citation at, at grasp, but, you know, that, that's the notion is that even believers, even when they fall, you know, they can rise again and, and continue walking on their walk. Other questions? Yes, in the back. Yeah, that's a great question. And so the question is, uh, if, if you've got a brother who's insisting that this is a biblical command, and in contrast, you believe very strongly this is a matter of Christian liberty, how do you engage that discussion? How, how hard do you go, if you will? And, you know, this happens very often in cases where you have a very broad description. It's like, love your neighbor. Uh, again, this is a prime example. Love your neighbor. Everybody's been talking about love your neighbor this past year and a quarter, year and a third, you know? But that's a very broad concept, right? And it may be how we choose to love our neighbor is a very personal, individual matter and a matter for our own stewardship. And I tell people, look, I will, you, you are more than welcome to love your neighbor in the way that you see fit. I, too, will love my neighbor in the way that I see fit because that's my own accountability before Lord, the Lord. You know, I, I, it's so interesting gathering for corporate worship, I tell people, it's like, I believe I am loving my neighbor because I am showing my neighbors the importance of corporate worship. I am showing my neighbors that I am loving the Lord our God and, and that that is an even a greater commandment than the more general, broad commandment to love your neighbor. And I believe that I can do that by painting a picture. How The scriptures say, how will they know us? They will know us by our love for one another. That is how the outside world would know that we are Christians, by our Christian love for one another as Christians. And that gathering in corporate worship, again, points to two other principles that someone might vociferously disagree with, and they might even falsely accuse me that I'm not loving my neighbor. Well, remember, love rejoices in the truth, right? And so there's all kinds of aspects to love and the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. And so to your question... I think it will depend, as is often the case on these types of discussions and confrontations, the, how close your relationship is with that person, uh, just the nature of that relationship. And, you know, initially it's always good to perhaps have discussions and, can, hey, let's make sure we fully understand each other and you can have that dialogue. But, yeah, it may get to the point where if that person is really trying to graft very specific... It's like, you know, it's, again, we see this. I mentioned at the beginning of the, the message about the social justice movement. We often see these very specific... Well, if you're not making my priority the number one priority in your life, then you're not being a good Christian. That's legalism. You know, it's like, look, that, you, we each have our own stewardship before God to use the limited amounts of time, money, resources that God has given us. And, you know, the calling that God plays... I have a special love in my own heart for the continent of Africa, you know, and just I love missions efforts to the continent of Africa, and that's a deep need in my heart. But I can't go around to everybody else saying, you need to make Africa your number one priority. That, that would be, how heavy-handed would that be? That would be horribly heavy-handed and legalistic and presumptuous of me to do.
Sir. Yeah, that's a great question. So the question is, uh, as you're thinking about topics such as dating and, uh, you know, is there a wisdom uh, that you see from Scripture and even commands in Scripture that might really bear upon this? And the risk is, if you just say it's all a matter of liberty, that kind of flattens everything out and people then kind of take that liberty as license. And again, we're, we're, the quote I read at the end from Nichols, you know, says we're not, you know, the opposite of legalism is not license, it is liberty. So I think that's an excellent question because, again, it goes back. All of these questions really seem to come back to the root, which is we have wisdom from the word of God. And, you know, so many times people will use liberty as a covering for evil or use liberty as, a, as an opportunity for self-indulgence. And that was one of the very first warnings that I gave in terms of the fourth section on rules of man legalism. And so I think it's important. Look, we are to give each other the scriptures. We are to say, look, this is wise the Proverbs say, you know, this is even commanded, do not defraud your brother, you know, in 1 Thessalonians 4. And, and I think, you know, being aware of these things and, you know, you can't just dismiss certain commands as liberty. Now, as we just talked about, certain commands are broad and such, you know, that you may need to bring a level of personal conviction to how you apply those specifically. But absolutely, I think we are to bring the scriptures to one another, but we just need to make it clear, you know, again, these distinctions between this is wisdom from scripture this is personal opinion. This is a command from Scripture. This is sin from Scripture. And knowing these category distinctions, I think, is important and helpful. There is a risk to be plain about what you just said, like, oh, it's all liberty, so therefore I can do whatever I want. But that is the attitude that is specifically spoken against that I, that I talked about in terms of do not use your liberty as a, as a covering for evil or do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. And, you know, again, I think as I said, sometimes people are not going to heed, and, 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 and they may need to go make that mistake if they're acting truly in a matter of that is foolish but not sin. And frankly, if they stray off into sin, that's when you may need to bring a Matthew 18 confrontation. And so I hope that uh, helps. Let's do one more question, and then we'll finish. Anyone have a burning question? Yes, at the back. I can't see which... Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, uh, you know, there are Christians across the world and even in this country who really kind of emphasize grace to such an extent that, uh, you know, arguably uh, it would become an excuse to not strive for holy living. And that's a very timely question because we recently saw uh, just news stories about uh, allegations against a pastor, former pastor named Byron Yawn. 
and uh, this man just uh, had uh, really done some deplorable things uh, in the news, and uh, you know, just you see that, and this man had previously taken kind of more of a walk toward that uh, pathway of, uh, there, was a, there was a time of where Tulian Chavigian is another name, another disgraced pastor who was really pressing something called uh, uh, gospel-centered sanctification was what he called it. But really, uh, it was this notion of, you know, grace, 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 you know, stop trying so hard, you know, let God kind of uh, work. And, you know, that, that would be my paraphrase of that philosophy. And it is more of a dangerous antinomian-leaning philosophy. It, it, it really is uh, a type of philosophy that often leads you down the path of antinomianism, which is to say lawlessness and sin. And sadly, we often see this type of theology leading to moral failure, exactly like what happened to Tulian Chavigian and uh, to Byron Yon. And so I think your, your question is very timely. It's a very timely warning. And what we can do is we can, I think, have a proper view of sanctification that, again, Paul talks numerous times about how we struggle against the flesh and how it's a war even against our sin and how we are to take that very seriously. And that is a part of sanctification. And, you know, I think having that right understanding of doctrine in that matter is very helpful. And as we've talked about, being able to point at the clear commands in Scripture. Look, we are commanded to flee sexual immorality. There's not a lot of nuance to that, right? That's pretty clear. And so to the the extent that people start to fight against the clear commands of Scripture like that, before we even get into the question of wisdom issues, which we've talked about quite a bit in this Q&A, that, that's a real red flag and a warning sign. And I would, again, there, there may be cause to confront plainly and say, look, this is, these are the clear commands of Scripture. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15, the words of Jesus. And I think that having that kind of fundamental baseline understanding of basic doctrine and reemphasizing that can be helpful to combating that attitude. Well, thank you so much for being here, and God bless you on this day.